0: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Good morning. Welcome to What's Going On, a show about making a difference in our lives and our communities. I'm Lorraine Ballard Morrow. My late dad served in both World War II and the Korean War. July 27th marked the 70th anniversary of the end of the Korean War. Nearly six million service members served in this war. The Library of Congress Veterans History Project has a mission to collect, preserve, and make accessible the first-person remembrances of United States military veterans for future generations. And they're actively seeking Korean War veterans' recorded oral history interviews, original photographs, letters, and other correspondence to be archived and made accessible for future generations. We'll tell you how you can participate. The brutal murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in 1955 was a catalyst for the civil rights movement. We'll tell you how the National Parks Conservation Association is working to create a new park site that honors Emmett and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. First, we highlight a leader making a huge difference in our community.
0: I'm Kenny Holdsman. I'm one of five co-founders of Philadelphia Youth Basketball, and I also serve as the organization's CEO.
2: Describe your organization and its mission.
0: So PYB at its core is a youth development and community empowerment organization, homegrown right here in Philadelphia. And our great intention is to create transformative opportunities for thousands of young people to self-determine as human beings, as students, as community leaders, and building a life for them that has value, maybe even beyond what they could have dreamed up or what their circumstances might afford them.
2: And how do you do that?
0: We do that through a range of programming. A lot of it ties basketball with civic engagement, academic support, social and emotional learning, work-based career exposure, entrepreneurship. But it's really about helping young people identify passion and purpose. But at the end of the day, all of that requires a deep trusting relationship. So for us, the superpower is the relatability and the care Uh, of our coach mentors, many of whom come from identical communities and circumstances as the young people whom they interact with on a daily basis.
2: You certainly have a passion for uplifting young people and all the work that you've done. And I wonder if you can tell us a little more about what drives you, what what drives you to co-create an organization like this?
0: In many ways, what drives me is a sense of opportunity and access or put less positively disparity we have a city and region that is in many ways filled with abundance and desire and opportunity yet at the same time for a lot of young people especially kids from communities of color and lower income communities there isn't the same set of opportunities and we need to create the conditions the pathways the sense of love and empowerment in young people so they can believe in themselves and create big dreams and have a legitimate shot to go execute on those dreams.
2: Tell us about the successes that you've had so far.
0: We have built a program and an organization that is robust, impactful, and inclusive. And although it's taken us coming now on nine years to build a holistic, 100,000-square-foot, state-of-the-art center, we are well underway so that's six months out from being completed. And it's a $36 million center in the middle of Nicetown of North Philadelphia. And it isn't just the what that we've accomplished that at least I'm most proud of. It's the how and the with whom. So when we say we are building a transformative program organization and center of, by, for, and with the community, and that's not just mere rhetoric for us. That's actionable, intentional approach from the beginning in 2015 about uh, who serves on the staff team, who's in the boardroom, who are the key vendors who deliver goods and services for a fee to the organization, in what way do we honor the voices of young people and their families. So at a time when racial equity, for all the right reasons, uh, was really lifted up during the pandemic and after the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, this has been this racial equity work for PYB has been actionable and embedded into our core way of being since the very inception. Other success stories? We just had a youth entrepreneurship program that finished where we taught, uh, 12 young people in Philadelphia, all from Philadelphia public schools about the art and the science of building a company. And there was a young man named Nasir Powell from Simon Gratz High School who was the winner of the Shark Tank, the culminating activity at the end of that program. And he got a business coach and $10,000 of seed money to grow his company, Cookies Lawn Care, to employ younger people in North Philadelphia. And Nasir will have the contract to keep our campus clean. And he goes to school six blocks away at Simon Gratz.
2: Wow. That's amazing. I always... uh and with a fun question and so this fun question is if you had a superpower what superpower would you choose for yourself and why
0: well the superpower that i have i think in in abundance is persistence and tenacity and in a world where social impact is really hard building an organization bringing an amazing set of colleagues and board members and partners and supporters together, it requires real tenacity. And similar to the game of baseball, you might get into the Hall of Fame if you bat 300. What that means is seven out of 10 times when you ask somebody to participate, you might get a maybe, a no, you might be ignored. And the ability to be dogged in the pursuit of the mission is something that I think I I have in great ways. At times, I think it can come off as a bit overbearing or a bit much. But be that as it may, uh, that's my superpower. And by extension, I think it's the superpower of PYB.
2: If people want more information about PYB, where do they go?
0: If people want to find out more about Philadelphia Youth Basketball, our website is uh, www.phillyyouthbasketball.org. We're also on every social media platform, and that's the first point of entry. But if people want to actually speak with a member of the staff team, we have 16 unbelievable, caring, uh, mission-aligned colleagues who love to talk and show and engage. So a visit to program, a visit to the Future Center is always welcome. There's nothing like being with young people in a classroom or a gym or being on our construction site with a hard hat to truly appreciate the way that we're trying to knit together youth development with workforce development, with community development, all with a really purposeful approach to racial equity and inclusiveness.
2: My father fought in the Korean War. We just marked the 70th anniversary of the Korean War. Many of the stories of our veterans are being lost as our veterans are passing on. But there is a project, which is through the Library of Congress Veterans History Project, which is collecting, preserving, and making accessible first-person remembrances of United States military veterans for future generations, and is actively seeking Korean War veterans. And joining us right now is Monica Mahindra, director of the Veterans History Project of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Thank you so much for joining us today. The Korean War is often thought of as the Forgotten War, and I wonder if you can tell us a little more
1: about why you think that is. I think there are actually a few things that are important in our culture to understand about that, which is that it was bookended by these two massive monolithic conflicts. You have World War II on one end and the Vietnam War on the other end. And there's also this synergy between when the Korean War happened and what we call culturally the silent generation. So I think that has quite a bit to do with it. However, there is so much that is so relevant to the experience of Korean War veterans, to our Experienced today, people like yourself, whose parents served men and women. It was also the conflict that was really informed by the desegregation of the United States military. In addition to the 70th anniversary of the Korean War, this year we're also marking the 75th anniversary of desegregation. So, so many relevant reasons to not let it remain the Forgotten War.
2: I think that is so important, as my dad did serve in the Korean War and won a Bronze Star. He was one of the African-American soldiers who served there and uh, and had many things to say about his experience. Sadly, he passed away in 1989. But there are many veterans out there who are still around and have stories to tell. Tell us more about the importance of sharing these stories for future generations.
1: Well, not only do we have the opportunity at the Veterans History Project in your home, in your community right now with the Library of Congress to ensure that these stories are not lost, but it's not just for future generations. We are so fortunate that we are able to present our already existing 116,000 plus individual collections of U.S. veterans experience to share those points of relevancy in our everyday lives. So not only can people work within their communities, the people that they love to capture the stories of those veterans who are still with us? They can share also collections of original photographs, journals, memoirs, diaries two-dimensional documentation of that first-person experience, but also see and hear and experience the collections we already have Mm. at the Library of Congress.
2: Well, I have been to various museums that have marked the contributions of our veterans. I was at the Pearl Harbor Memorial in Hawaii, and I can't even tell you how what an impression that made on me to hear these stories, to hear the experiences of these men, most of whom have passed on, but their stories still resonate with us as well. Now, I wonder if you can tell us more about how we can participate in this project.
1: Absolutely. It's really as simple as just going to our website, for locforlibraryofcongress.gov forward slash vets. That's the plural for veterans shortened V-E-T-S. And there you'll find a seven minute video that helps you understand how to participate in what happens to the collection. And it really is as straightforward as sitting down with a seriousness of purpose with a veteran in your life to help gather their oral history through the recorder in your pocket, the mobile phone or the tablet you have available to you. It doesn't have to be, Lorraine, the studio expertise that you have. We're just looking for that seriousness of purpose. Fill out the forms to make it archivally acceptable for the Library of Congress. And then really that simple, straightforward act between a couple of people to sit down and ensure that this isn't lost becomes part of our national collective archive at the Library of Congress.
2: I wonder if you can share with us some of the individuals who have shared their stories.
1: Oh, it's so hard, you know, with so many collections to pick a favorite. And of course, so many veterans served in, particularly those who served in the Korean War, many of them served also in World War II or in Vietnam. But there are a few that come to mind. Um, one is Army veteran James Allen, who, who joined the military as a means of escape from the difficult life in racially segregated Florida in the 1950s. Growing up, he had been taught and the ideas had been fully ingrained in him that he was a second class citizen in our country that whites should go first in his own words that's how he describes it but then in the army he served in a variety of administrative capacities both in korea and then later in Vietnam. and he was always ready to take on a new challenge
0: okay round two name something that's not boring
1: Even, you know, he talks about uh, assignments that he wasn't necessarily trained for. Um, He went on to win, like your father, but his was in the Vietnam conflict. He won um, a bronze star for his work as well, but he... The thing that really strikes me about his collection, because he served during the Korean conflict, is that he then went back afterwards to Florida to take all the expanse of his experience with him and to continue to serve his community, particularly veterans and African American veterans. And I just, that story always really stands out to me. But we have wonderful stories of of women who served. And I think it's really important to point out the women who served during the Korean War, had particular experiences because of the desegregation of the military that have been of particular interest to researchers utilizing the Veterans History Project, which has been around for 20 years. And almost from the very beginning, those women's stories were of deep interest to researchers.
2: No, for sure. I think that the women participated in the military, both in World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, they're often forgotten stories. They have stories to tell that are truly remarkable. I think I remember a show called China Beach back in, I think, the 80s. And it's about a woman's experience as a nurse in the Vietnam War. But one of the things that I think I remember I took away from that show was seeing the interviews with the nurses who actually did serve and what their experiences were like. And I think that it's wonderful that you're actually capturing these stories throughout the many veterans who are still around to, to share those stories. But also we have stories that perhaps can be told for those who have passed on. And I wonder if you can tell us more about that.
1: Thank you, Lorraine, for that really thoughtful question. And that is um, often top of mind for folks who are having veterans in their families who are at end-of-life stages or have recently passed. And it's important to know that the Veterans History Project has always, uh, for 20 years, accepted the first-person documentation of those veterans who have passed through collections of original photographs, letters, diaries, and journals. And so gathering those together from those who served from World War I through the more recent conflicts is a great way to begin a legacy and memorialize the first-person experience. But in 2016, the Veterans History Project legislation was amended to also include specific designations around Gold Star families to ensure that those collections are also part of the larger conversation and collective understanding of veteran and service experience.
2: It's always wonderful to be able to sit down with loved ones to share their stories, and I think this is such an important contribution that we can have. But also, I think, for those family members who are able to participate in this project, it can be so very meaningful to them. I'm sure that some of the information that comes out of these interactions are stories and information that family members may not even have known prior to being involved in this project. So certainly I had the opportunity to interview my dad, not so much about his Korean war experience, but just about his experience in general as having lived through two wars and the civil rights movement and all of those things and and how much that really meant to me. And I have this little cassette (laughs) of my dad and I just uh, I treasure it so deeply. Now, once again, people want to not only participate in the project, but also would like to hear and See some of these stories. Remind us once again how they can do that.
1: Our website at the Library of Congress Veterans History Project is loc.gov/vets, and loc stands for Library of Congress.gov for government and forward slash vets plural for the short form of veterans, V-E-T-S. And there you can sit even with a a loved one who is a living veteran today to help connect with them over the stories of individuals who may have served in the same time or place, the same unit or occasion that they did, whether it was a battle or perhaps they were somebody who worked in administration or was a chaplain. We have ways to parse and splice and dice those stories so that you can find where your connection is and Maybe that would be a way to also share a meaningful moment this summer with a family member.
2: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing this information with us. Hopefully there are a lot of folks out there who will be able to take advantage of this opportunity to tell their very important and very significant stories of being a veteran, both in uh, the Korean War and all wars since then. Certainly, I'm sure you're also collecting uh, information from all the armed conflicts that we have been participating in. Monica Mohindra, director of the Veterans History Project of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Thank you so much for joining us here today.
1: I really appreciate you shedding light on this. Have a great day.
2: Emmett Till was a young African-American whose tragic and brutal murder in 1955 became a catalyst for the civil rights movement in the United States. At the age of 14, Till was visiting relatives in Mississippi when he was accused of whistling at a white woman. This accusation led to his abduction and subsequent lynching with his body found mutilated in the Tallahatchie River. Emmett Till's open casket funeral, which his mother Mamie insisted on, brought the horrifying reality of racial violence to the forefront of public consciousness. The lack of justice for Till's killers highlighted the need for civil rights reforms, ultimately inspiring countless activists to fight for racial equity and change the course of American history. The story of Emmett and Mamie is critical to telling the full story of the Civil Rights Movement and the National Parks Conservation Association have been working with members of the Till family and others to create a new park site that honors Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley and the tragedy that moved a nation and inspired us all. Joining us right now is Alan Spears, Senior Director of Cultural Resources for Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association. Thank you so much for joining us here today. And I did touch on the impact of Emmett Till's murder, but I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit more about the significance of this incident in the context of the civil rights movement and racial equity.
3: The tragedy of Emmett Till's lynching is the catalyst, really, for the birth of the modern civil rights movement in this country. You had covered a lot of that history, but some of the details that might be of interest to listeners. After the acquittal of Emmett Till's killers, there's a gentleman by the name of Dr. T.R.M. Howard from Mount Bayou, Mississippi, who goes on a lecture tour of African-American sites in the South. And he is speaking in a very impassioned way, informing people about the gross miscarriage of justice that's taken place and impacted the Till family and, in fact, the nation. He winds up in Montgomery at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church around Thanksgiving in 1955. And he gives this speech, electrifies the audience, angers the audience, frustrates the audience. And in the crowd that night at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church is Rosa Parks. And three days later, Rosa Parks refuses to give up her seat on that segregated bus in downtown Montgomery, thus launching the Montgomery bus boycott. And also, by the way, the career of an up until then, not very well-known preacher by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So Till's lynching. The open casket funeral on September 3rd, 1955 at Roberts Temple Church of God and Christ in Chicago, the acquittal of his killers after a four-day trial at the Tallahatchie County Courthouse and Sumner are the three catalysts that really launched the modern civil rights movement. Rosa Parks, when she refused to give up her seat, was responding to decades of abuse at the hands of the city's white bus drivers, abuse that was especially directed towards African-American women at the time. But she was also angry about Emmett Till's lynching and the acquittal of his murderers who had later confessed to the crime. That's why this particular event is so very important. The late Congressman John Lewis referred to Emmett Till as his George Floyd. And so in the day, in 1955, there were countless numbers of people of all races and all faiths who saw this lynching for what it was, a hate crime. That indicated that race relations and the way that social codes, especially in southern states, were impacting African-Americans was simply no longer acceptable. It was, in fact, barbaric and that things needed to change.
2: Now, there are a number of outgrowths of the Emmett Till murder, including the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley Institute, the Emmett Till Interpretive Center. And certainly he had a huge impact on the civil rights movement, as you mentioned, he was A catalyst and an inspiration for many people who were involved and became later well known in the civil rights movement. And I wonder if we can talk about what it means to get the national parks involved. How does that look? And what would be the impact of having a national park or the park's involvement in memorializing Emmett Till?
3: Well, I think the impact of having the park protected at the federal level is going to be huge. And it is also very necessary and very right. But if we can take a step back for a moment, Emmett Till was a 14 year old lynching victim. He didn't go from Chicago to Money, Mississippi in 1955 with the intention of being kidnapped and tortured and murdered. So he is a victim. The hero in this story, in my opinion, is his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. Here's a grieving mother who, up until the point in August 1955 when she realizes that her son has been killed, when that corpse, that badly mutilated corpse, comes back to Chicago and she sees what hatred did to her son, up until that point in time, I don't think it was ever in her mind that she was going to be an activist for civil rights. She had a past history of standing up for her own rights, being a proud African American woman. But the resilience and the determination that she showed while carrying all that grief for her murdered son, I think that's really one of the more poignant aspects of this story. And that's why this new unit, this new national monument to be managed by the National Park Service, was deliberately named the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley National Monument. We need to make sure that African American women are getting their just place on the American historic mantelpiece, and this will do that. The National Park Service, they are America's leading storytellers. And oftentimes, when people stop to think about national parks, if they do, and we hope they do, they're thinking about large landscape places like Yellowstone and Yosemite. But of the 425 units that are currently in the national park system, two-thirds were designated to protect and commemorate some aspect of this nation's history and culture. The remaining one third of large landscape parks are chock full of history and culture. So 100 percent of our national parks are in the historic and cultural resource management business. And even better, there are about 40 units in the national park system right now that are known as African-American experience sites. So the reason why we are ecstatic about the fact that this tragic story is now being added to the national park system is that it takes its place alongside places like Brown versus Board of Education, Little Rock Central High School, the Selma and Montgomery Trail, Tuskegee Institute, the Frederick Douglass Home, the Mary McLeod Bethune Council Home, and several other sites that are African-American history sites. And it is protected now at the highest possible level. And there's a great deal of cachet that comes from being a unit in the national park system that has that NPS arrowhead and a great deal of benefit when the stories are being interpreted collaboratively by the National Park Service and their community partners.
2: I love that you talk about how parks are about telling stories. And I wonder if you can tell us more specifically about this Emmett and Mamie Till Memorial and how this is going to look and what we can do to support it.
3: It's somewhat unique in that we've got non-contiguous or discontinuous units that are going to comprise one national park, one national monument. So we'll start at Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ. That was the site of the Open Casket Funeral in uh, September 3rd, 1955. That's on Chicago's south side at 40th and State Streets. And thousands of mourners uh, either went through that church uh, for the Open Casket Funeral that uh, Mamie Till insisted on having for her son, Thousands more were gathered outside the church. And so that's going to be one of the contributing resources and anchor sites in Chicago. And when we move down to the Mississippi Delta, we've got two contributing resources down there that will be owned and managed by the National Park Service. The first is the Tallahatchie County Courthouse, which again was the site of the trial of Emmett Dill's killers, September 19th to September 23rd, 1955. And you actually are going to be able to go into the, you know, the courthouse up to the second floor and see the restored courthouse. And you will get a sense of, through good interpretation and just the restructuring of that space, what it must have been like on that stuffy day for folks like Mamie Till Mobley and members of the African-American press sequestered off to one side of the courthouse, praying, praying that they would get justice that day, but also maybe knowing in in their hearts that probably they were not going to get a good verdict, and they didn't. And the last contributing resource in Mississippi is the body recovery site at Grable Landing. And that was where Emmett Till's body was fetched from the Tallahatchie River about three days after he went missing.
2: Wow. I, uh, I just got chills when you, when you said that. So where are we in terms of the timeline of, of all things evolving? And what can we do to be supportive of this memorial?
3: Well, we had a really good day here in Washington. I was fortunate enough to be invited to the White House to see President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris do the signing ceremony that established the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley National Monument. NPCA has been working on this campaign for about five years. I think we can regard ourselves as being blow-ins because there are people who have been working on this for decades. The Tallahatchie County Courthouse it was is still a functioning courthouse in Sumner County or in Sumner, Mississippi. But you can go there through the Emmett Till Interpretive Center and arrange a tour to get up to that second floor and see what was going on there. And our partners at the Emmett Till Interpretive Center in Sumner would be happy to help you do that so you can get in touch with them. Robert Simple Church of God in Christ is a little bit different because the National Park Service does not yet have the visitor contact station set up at the church. And the church is actually going to remain an active congregation. So they will be doing church functions for their congregation. It might not be possible to just walk in there anytime you want. But you can reach out to the National Park Service or to Roberts Temple to figure out when opportunities would exist to sort of visit the church and maybe get inside there. Grable Landing is this incredibly beautiful spot on the Tallahatchie River. It does not look like the place of a tragedy where a 14-year-old lynching victim's body was recovered. And maybe that's the place in Mississippi that you can go to after you have visited the courthouse and other civil rights associated sites that have some infrastructure and maybe just be in that river, a river spot in that natural spot and reflect and maybe see your blood pressure begin to come down a little bit after you've learned about some of the less fortunate aspects of this history. But those are the three. And then there will be other units that are not owned by the National Park Service that are within the constellation of these sites, including in Mississippi, the town of Mount Bayou, uh, again, the hometown of Dr. T.R.M. Howard. And they've got a great story to tell at the relatively new Mound Bayou Museum of African-American History and Culture. So especially within the Mississippi Delta, there are all sorts of civil rights related sites that you can tour. And some of those are found uh, in the Mississippi Delta National Heritage Area. So there's a wealth of places to go and it's a little bit like a ping pong back and forth uh, where you can get to a variety of places that are all within driving distance and all of them have great stories to tell. Maybe let me amend that. Maybe the stories aren't great, but they are certainly necessary stories and inspiring stories
2: to tell. If people would like to know more, I'd like to arrange their own personal pilgrimage to these sites. Is there a place where we can go to get more information?
3: I would recommend for folks to visit the NPCA website and you can go to NPCA.org forward slash till, And that's NPCA National Parks Conservation Association dot org forward slash till. You can get to see images of these places that are the hubs of this new national monument, learn a little bit more about the campaign that we've waged and about this history, too. You know, this is a story that should never have happened, but it did occur. And as such, it's a part of our shared national narrative. And all of us need to know about the details of Emmett Till's life, his death, and the resilience and determination of his mother to seek justice for a murdered son. And the action that President Biden took gets us several steps closer to elevating the level of public consciousness and understanding about Emmett Till and his significance. So we're grateful that the president took that action. We're grateful that the Park Service now has the chance to work the story in close collaboration with community partners. And going forward, I think we can just see this site improving and enhancing, and we'll be there to support it as much as we can.
2: Alan Spears, Senior Director of Cultural Resources Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association. Thank you so much.
3: It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: You can listen to all of today's interviews by going to our station website and typing in keyword community. You can also listen on the iHeartRadio app, Keywords Philadelphia Community Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Lorraine Ballard. I'm Lorraine Ballard-Marl, and I stand for service to our community and media that empowers. What will you stand for? You've been listening to What's Going On, and thank you.
3: 18- plus.